You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hi, everybody. It's our second class in sacraments, and today we get to talk about baptism and confirmation. Before we get going on these two sacraments, I have to make a point regarding liturgy, and that is that while the sacraments of the church are universally celebrated in every sector of the world, in every area, in every cultural experience of Catholic life, you know, the Catholic Church is really a communion of 22 churches and the largest of which is the Roman Church, the church that is the heir to Latin culture. Because of a number of schisms that went on, many of the Eastern churches are no longer in full communion with us, but there are many small Eastern churches that are in full communion with the Western or Latin church. Now, the reason I bring this up is because many things that we think are Catholic are actually Western. And I say we because I'm speaking to American Catholics, and for the most part here in America are Roman Rite or Latin Rite, at least 95% of us. And it's important for us to learn not to think that way, to think that Catholic equals Roman and Latin. It's important for us to learn the difference between what is essentially Catholic and what is particularly a tradition of the Western or the Roman Church as opposed to a tradition of the Eastern Church or the Universal Church. The reason I'm bringing this up now is because as we talk about confirmation, we're going to run into cultural difference that has nothing to do with Catholic dogma or doctrine. It just has to do with the accidents of history and the emphasis that has been chosen and the practical pastoral solution to a problem that was chosen very long time ago in the West, very long time ago in the East. And most recently, another just quirk of history that has led to the separation of not only confirmation from baptism, but also the kind of reversal of some traditional order of receiving the sacraments in the Western Church. And I'm speaking of confirmation being received after communion. These kinds of things are not Catholic things, they're historical things that have to do with particular factors in the history of a particular rite of the Church, namely for us, the Western or Latin rite. Okay, so we're going to talk now about the sacraments in their essence. And we're going to try to separate that out from some accidents of how they're celebrated. How the sacraments are celebrated, what prayers are said, at what age certain things are administered, they have to do with what right a Catholic belongs to, what cultural heritage and tradition is theirs. And we have many different rites in the Catholic Church, mainly the Latin Western rite, the Roman rite, but we have many Eastern ways of celebrating the sacraments, liturgical traditions, which we call rites. Okay? Now, I want to talk about, first and foremost, before we get into baptism and confirmation, the fact that there are three sacraments that are known as the sacraments of initiation. They're sacraments that are administered to those as they come into deeper communion with the Catholic Church. And there are three. There is baptism, what we know as confirmation, and then Eucharist. These three sacraments were originally administered all together. And to this day, they're still administered altogether to new adult converts in the Catholic Church of the West, the Latin Church. In the Eastern churches, they tend to be administered altogether all the time. In other words, when a baby is baptized in the Byzantine rite, he or she immediately is confirmed or chrismated. That's what the Easterners call the sacrament that the Westerners call confirmation. And immediately, in many cases, ancient Eastern tradition has children receiving the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. So it's sometimes a shock for a Latin Rite Catholic to walk into a Byzantine Catholic church and see little children receiving communion. But you have to understand that the three sacraments of initiation in the ancient church were always administered together to new Christians, whether they be infants or whether they be adults. And once someone went through that initiation, of course, they would continue to receive the Eucharist on a regular basis. Let's talk about the idea of this triad, this unity of the sacraments of initiation. You know, even in the Latin Church today, where we see baptism is separated from confirmation by a time period of at least seven years and many times many more years in the case of infants. And then, you know, it's also there's a time lag between confirmation and Eucharist. How do we see the ancient unity manifested? 
Well, we actually see it in the rite of baptism because in the rite of baptism, we always in the Latin church follow the baptism of a child with an anointing, with sacred chrism. This anointing points forward to confirmation and it shows us that baptism isn't complete without confirmation. Also, when infants are baptized during Mass, they're supposed to be brought up around the altar at the time of the Our Father. What's the meaning of that? It shows that baptism is dynamically linked to the Eucharist. That people who are baptized are on a journey, on their way to full communion with the Church in and through the Eucharist. So there's hints of this unity that we see even in the ritual of the Latin Church today. And let me just point out that this initiation process is really all about the fact that in our Christian life, we're really on a journey. And it's a mystery of ever deepening communion with God and with the church. That's what the journey is about. And that's what initiation is about. Baptism initiates our relationship with Christ and the church in a visible way. Confirmation deepens that and that in the Eucharist, it comes to full expression. And from that point on, we are ever deepening our communion with Christ in the church. Let's talk about baptism, which the catechism calls the door of entry. The word baptism in Greek means to plunge or to immerse. And we ought to talk about that first and foremost, since that's the etymology. Why is it that we don't immerse in the Catholic Church? Well, the fact is we do. Immersion really means putting the body into the water. And it doesn't necessarily mean full submersion. Immersion means putting it in. And immersion is actually the preferred way of baptism. It's kind of the default, but because of habit, we do not do it very often in the Western church. It's more trouble to configure the church for immersion, especially for adults, than it is for simply pouring of water over the head. That's called effusion. So in the Catholic Church, really, immersion is very legitimate, in fact, preferred, and it's really convenience that leads people not to do it very often. But let me just point out that in the ancient church, universally, immersion was used and preferred. And the reason is because immersion is a better symbol. It's a better symbol of what baptism is about. But from the very beginning of the church, it was never deemed to be necessary for the sacrament to work. And I know this, and we know this, because there's an ancient document that talks about baptism and about celebration of the liturgy, and it's known as the Didache. And it really shows the Catholic approach to baptism beautifully when it comes to immersion. And here's what it says. This goes back to the early 2nd century, and the section that we're reading right now probably goes back to the late 1st century. Here's what the writer says, instructing Christians on how to perform baptism. It says, baptize in running water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But if you don't have running water, meaning a stream, baptize in some other. And if you cannot baptize in cold, then in warm. The ancient world, they had bathhouses with warm and cold baths. If you have neither, then pour water on the head three times. That's very practical, and being practical is very Catholic. Here's the ideal. Baptizing in running water, Christ was baptized in the Jordan. Immersion. That is a great sign. But if you can't do it there, okay, here's the next best way to do it. And if you can't do it there, here's the next best way to do it. So there's a minimum. The pouring of water three times on the head with the reciting of the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what's necessary for validity, minimally. But it's a better sign to baptize in a way that demonstrates that we are being buried with Christ in the water. Okay? Let's talk about the meaning of water. If you remember in the very first lecture, I pointed out that sacraments are indeed symbols, very special kind of symbols. They're full symbols. They contain what they signify. But remember what I said about symbols. Symbols are not things that mean only one thing. Symbols have multiple meanings. And water in baptism is exactly that. It is a symbol that has multiple meanings. And if you try to say that water means just this, you're missing the boat on the fullness of baptism. Now, when we think of water in baptism, we a lot of times typically think of washing. Baptism means getting cleansed of sin. We're being washed of sin. Well, that's partially true, of course. It's some of the symbolism that we find in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, where Christ cleansed the church, it says by the washing of water with the Word. 
And also we read Titus 3.5, talks about washing there. Hebrews 10.22 talks about a bath. But that's not the primary meaning of water. It's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning of water in baptism is destruction. Think about Noah and the flood. What did water do then? It destroyed sin. It wiped it out. It didn't just cleanse the world. It killed. Think about the Red Sea. Water kills the enemy of God's people. It totally obliterates the enemy. And Israel emerges from the water free. Okay? Christ dies for us. He goes into the tomb for us. And Paul says that the Christian life is all about dying with Christ, being buried with Him so that we can rise with Him. The water of baptism is a symbol of the tomb. When people in the early church were baptized, often they would be totally submerged. Do you believe in God the Father? People would say, I do, and they would be dunked under the water. They disappear from sight, and then they come up. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son? I do. Down again, and then up. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do. Down and up. Being buried with Christ in the water was a very visual experience for those watching. And being submerged under the water was a very impressive experience for those being baptized. But it showed what was going on. We're sharing in Christ's death. We're going to the tomb with Christ in this sacrament. There's a number of scriptures that bring this out very powerfully. Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism unto death. There's a number of other things that we can see in the Catholic tradition in certain documents. Now, I've, had, I've assigned you to read some wonderful documents from the early church. And one is the Catechetical Instructions of Cyril of Jerusalem. And he points out how baptism recalls the destruction of Pharaoh. And if you look at the readings at the Easter Vigil, which is a time when Christians traditionally were baptized, you see all the symbolism of the Red Sea. It's right there before you. Also see the symbolism of the flood. That's right there. That's read during the Easter Vigil in the Roman liturgy. So the font is a tomb. Before a new life can begin, the old life has to die. But you know what? The font is also a womb. It is the womb of the church. When we're born naturally, we're born out of water. We live in our mother's womb in water. And how long do we live in there? Well, 40 weeks. Well, why do you think there are 40 days of Lent? The 40 symbolizes the time of carrying a baby to term, the time of gestation. After the 40 days of Lent, new Christians are born at the Easter Vigil. That's when in the ancient church, people were baptized. Many, many, many people baptized all at once at the Easter Vigil, just like today we see increasingly in Easter Vigil, adults are baptized or received into full communion into the Catholic Church through the RCIA program. This is the way it was in the early church. Okay, so water means birth. You know, you need water for seeds to grow, for plants to sprout in nature. But it's out of water that we're born. So there's a new birth signified by this water. There's death, there's washing, there's new birth. Titus 3, 5 to 7, talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. In fact, John 3, the famous passage that talks about being born again or born from above, really is about baptism. It's not simply about accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior in words and in decision. Here's what Jesus says in Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus then clarifies what he means. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about baptism here. That's very clear to scriptural interpreters from all different faiths, all different Christian traditions. Okay? So this is part of the meaning of baptism. Let's look also at one other thing. When the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, before entering the promised land, what did they have to do? They had to cross another body of water, the Jordan River. Crossing the Jordan, entering into the Promised Land, is part of the symbolism of the water of baptism. In fact, the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, which details how the early Christians in Rome, around the year 200, experienced baptism in the sacraments. We see that the early Christians on Easter Vigil night, those who had not been baptized yet, would go through baptism. They would walk through the water, from one side to the water to the other, 
And once they walked through the other side of the water and were baptized, they'd be greeted by the bishop. They would be anointed with oil or confirmed. They'd be walked into the church to join all the others and for the first time would be able to attend the Eucharist. See, in the early church, until you were baptized and confirmed, you could not even witness the Eucharistic liturgy. You had to be dismissed right after the homily. You could hear the scripture readings, but you couldn't even pray the prayer of the faithful. We'll show you why in a minute. But for the first time, they could see the sacred mysteries being celebrated, and they could receive the Eucharist. And when they walked up to receive the sacred body and blood of Christ, they received one more thing. They drank out of a cup of mixed milk and honey to symbolize that they had now arrived in the promised land. Okay, so there is different symbolism. The symbolism of water in baptism recalls many Old Testament events. Many realities are brought to mind in the baptismal celebration. And what is necessary for validity? Water must be used and the person baptized must be baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity. Now why is that? Well, I'm going to talk about the Trinitarian relationship in a minute, but first I'll just mention there are other rites or liturgical celebrations that we Roman Catholics are used to that are not essential parts of baptism. If you are in an emergency situation and someone is at the point of death and not yet baptized and wants to be baptized, you only need to pour water on the person's head and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when we have the privilege of being able to celebrate this in church, there are many sacramentals, rites that are not sacraments themselves, but which really represent something very powerful and also provide the occasion for the church to pray for God's grace to come. And these wonderful ceremonies are such things as the threefold renunciation of Satan. Do you reject Satan? I do. And all his ways? I do. And all his empty promises? I do. That used to be dramatically symbolized by Christians facing west, the land of darkness where the sun is overcome by darkness. And they would renounce Satan, the father of darkness and the father of lies. And then they would turn to the east to where the sun rises and profess their faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by reciting the creed. Then they would go into the water. That was the way things were done in the early church. That is a sacramental ceremony that's beautiful, but not an essential part of the sacrament itself. Here's another very powerful part of the ceremony, but not a part of the ceremony itself or the sacrament. It's one of the ceremonies associated with it, but not part of the sacrament. And that is tracing the sign of the cross on the forehead of the Christian about to be baptized. That is something we still do today, and it goes back to apostolic times. Because the sign of the cross is so widely used in Catholic life, it's important to point it out here what it means. It is the sign that brandmark of baptism on the soul of a Christian. We believe the sacrament of baptism and also the sacrament of confirmation change us. We are marked, we're changed in a way that can never be unchanged. We're marked as sons and daughters of God. And the sign of the cross is that exterior visible sign of that. And the original sign of the cross is that sign traced on the forehead. We see little hints of it in the New Testament. I believe that there's strong evidence that this sign of the cross does in fact go back to the apostles. Why? Look at Revelation. Revelation, a number of places in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, 3 to 4. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God upon their foreheads. There's 144,000 of them, the perfect number, and they're dressed in white. Now, doesn't that sound like baptism? Today, we dress people in white who are baptized. That goes back to the early church. In the name of God and the Lamb, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what the sign of the cross means. It means that we are marked as belonging to the three persons of the Trinity. We're marked with the sign of salvation. A relationship is initiated that can never completely be obliterated. We're now sons and daughters of the Father. This is a fascinating thing. A uh, fascinating thing indeed. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6, 17. And think about this baptismal ceremony with the sign of the cross on the forehead. I carry on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Now he's contrasting this with the mark, the physical mark of circumcision that Judaizers want to impose on Gentiles. And he says, no, we're not interested in that. Circumcision doesn't matter. What really matters is the new creation. I submit to you that he's talking about baptism. 
which is understood as the new circumcision, the spiritual circumcision. What's the new mark? If the old mark was circumcision, the, the loss of the foreskin, the new mark is the sign of the cross on the forehead. Okay? So think about Cain. Cain was punished by God, but at the same time, Cain begged for help from God in his exile, which was punishment was exile. He said, Lord, you know, if I'm wandering the face of the earth, anybody could kill me. And God put a mark on his forehead that said, this guy belongs to me, and if you mess with him, you're going to have to answer to me. That's the sign of the cross means, that we belong to Christ, we are his property, nobody better mess with us, particularly not the enemy, the evil one, who's been vanquished by that sign of the cross. So the sign of the cross is a very powerful symbol that comes right out of baptism. That's where it came from. Later on, because it's a sign of protection, it became enlarged to cover all of our vitals like a shield. That's where the large sign of the cross came from. But the original sign comes from the apostolic era right out of the baptismal ceremony. Okay, what else do we have? Well, I mentioned the white garment. The white garment goes back, I believe, to apostolic times as reflected in Revelation. And what we see is we're purified because of Christ's blood, and therefore we are now clothed with Christ. That imagery is all throughout the Pauline letters. Put on Jesus Christ like a garment. Okay, strip off the old self. In the early baptismal ceremony, people would actually be fully stripped nude when they went into the water. And that's one of the reasons why we had women deacons. Women deacons would baptize women who were disrobed and naked in the water, standing at least up to their waist as they were immersed. Okay, so that's a fascinating bit of history that really shows us the meaning of this new garment. As people would come out of the water, they'd be clothed in brand new clothes. They would not go in the same way they came out. They would cross through a baptismal pool and come up on the other side, just as if they had crossed over the Red Sea, over the Jordan, and now they have new clothes, the white garment of purity, of righteousness. The candle, we use a candle today. The baptismal candle symbolizes the fact that baptism is enlightenment. We've been now given the gift of the Spirit so we can see with new eyes. We can see that Jesus is not just a carpenter's son, he is Lord. Okay, he is master, he is the Word made flesh. And in the Latin church, we are anointed by a priest with sacred chrism. And this chrism, this anointing, is a sacramental. It is not a sacrament. In the Eastern church, it is a sacrament. It is confirmation. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, what I want to talk about at this moment is, is baptism absolutely necessary for salvation? Because it says in John 3, 5, unless one be born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. The church has taken this very seriously, but it's also come to see that there has to be some interpretation of this that is not absolutely literal. Because in the early church, very soon, you know, after Jesus said this, and this was written in John's Gospel and read, very soon after that, there were people who would be preparing for baptism, catechumens, who would lose their life in martyrdom. And could we possibly say that they weren't saved because they weren't physically baptized in water sacramentally? The early fathers said, no, they were baptized, but they were baptized in their own blood. So baptism of blood was seen as an exception. Well, what happened later on when people who were catechumens, very desirous of being baptized, going through instruction that many times would last three years in the early church, what happens when they would die not of martyrdom, but of a heart attack or some other ailment before they were able to be baptized? Well, the church understood that they were baptized by desire. Their desire for baptism helped them to participate in that sacrament, even though they didn't receive it. So they would not be barred from admission to the kingdom of God. Those two are very well established in tradition. But how can people possibly be saved who don't know about Christ, who have never heard of Christ, who are seeking to do God's will as best they know it, but have not heard of the gospel, don't know that baptism is necessary? Well, there's an implicit way I would submit, now this is not explicitly taught by the church, but I would, interpreting this, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, interpreting the tradition, I would say that their desire to do God's will implicitly includes a desire to be baptized. If they knew that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, and if they knew that Jesus required baptism to be joined to him, they would desire it because they desire to do the will of God. So that's the way I would see non-Christians who are righteous and never have the opportunity to be baptized as having the opportunity through a certain implicit desire to be included in the kingdom of God. 
I'm not saying that that's absolutely the case, you know, that everyone is saved or anything of that sort, but I'm just saying that that's the way theologically one can see others participating in baptism in a hidden and implicit way who never can have the opportunity to be baptized. Now, who is the minister, the proper minister of baptism? I've already in the previous class alluded to the fact that baptism is rather unique. From earliest times, because it is seen as so necessary for salvation, so urgent that people receive it, it has always been understood that not just priest or bishop, but any Christian can baptize. And in the Western tradition, we see that even pagans can baptize. Let's say there is a couple, a Jewish couple or an atheist couple or a Muslim couple or whatever, who are inquiring into membership in the church, who have come to the conviction that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, but they haven't been baptized yet. And they're in an automobile accident and one of them is dying. Well, the other who's unbaptized can baptize the first in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, even someone who's not a believer can baptize someone else. You know, here I gave you a scenario where there's someone who has come to faith but not yet baptized. Well, even someone who is not baptized and not believing can baptize another. So necessary is this gift of baptism. In any case, when baptism is performed, it's not by virtue of the minister's faith that baptism works. It's because the minister is an instrument of Christ. It's always Christ who baptizes. It's always the Holy Spirit that is conveyed in baptism. Okay, so anyone can baptize and baptism can take place as long as there's water and the name of the three persons. Okay, now what does baptism actually accomplish? It accomplishes a threefold relationship and that's why we must baptize in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When someone is baptized, number one, they're incorporated into Christ. This is an important point to understand. It's not as if just as an individual, this person becomes forgiven of their individual sin. This person is a member of a human race that has been alienated from God through the sin of Adam and Eve. And what's needed is they need to join a new humanity. And that humanity, that new humanity is the body of Christ, the church. So in baptism, someone is taken from the old humanity, the fallen Adam, the fallen race of humanity, and is now joined to a new humanity. He's grafted into Christ Jesus and into his body, the church. You cannot come into a relationship with Jesus without being put into a relationship with his body, the church. It's impossible. So every person who is baptized, as far as Catholics are concerned, are joined to the body of Christ, which is the Catholic Church. That might be a little upsetting for people who aren't Catholic, but as far as we're concerned as Catholics, every baptized Christian is imperfectly, at least, joined to the Catholic Church. It's not a question of us and them, it's a question of we together. That's really the way in which we need to look at non-Catholic Christians as members in a very significant way of the same body that we're members of. There's only one body of Christ. There's only one church, and that church, as Vatican II says, subsists in, comes to uh, fullest visible expression in the Catholic Church. Okay, so incorporation into the church is what happens through baptism. It's a visible sacramental bond that we Christians who are baptized have with each other. We have a visible bond of unity with all baptized Christians. So in coming into communion with the church and into Christ's body, we share in everything that Christ has. We share in his righteousness. All sin is forgiven. All punishment for sin is obliterated. We share in Christ's victory. Satan, his hold is broken in our lives. But also we share in his spirit. We become temples of the Holy Spirit as members of Christ's body. You know, the Spirit comes to rest upon him in his own baptism. So when we enter into his baptism, we become sharers, partakers in the Holy Spirit. It's important to know that we don't wait till confirmation to receive the Spirit. We receive the Spirit in baptism. And that Spirit is given to us for our own personal sanctification, for our own transformation. We share in Christ's anointing. To become a Christian means to be anointed because that's what Christ means. Christ is the Greek translation for Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. Christ is the one anointed with the Spirit. We share in his anointing if we have the name Christian. Okay? Now, the Spirit is the great gift, the uncreated gift, but when he comes, he brings with him all gifts. So he brings with him sanctifying grace. He brings with him all the theological virtues, faith, hope, charity, the seven gifts of the Spirit as laid out in Isaiah 11. 
Now we typically talk about them when we catechize people for confirmation, but all those seven gifts are conveyed in baptism as well. We also are given charisms. The Catholic Church is officially a charismatic church. We believe that all the charisms of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament are made available today to God's people. They're free gifts given by the Spirit to whomever He wills for the upbuilding of the church. But it says clearly in the Catechism, chapter 1266, in Second Vatican Council's great document, Lumen Gentium, the Constitution on the Church, 12 and 30, that these charisms are for all times and they are conveyed along with the Spirit in baptism and confirmation. Okay, so we come into relationship with Christ and His body, the Church, relationship with the Holy Spirit, we made His temples, and we also come into relationship with the Father. We become adopted children of the Father. And this is where I think the idea of sacramental character really, really makes sense. Because when we're adopted as children of the Father, we can never lose that relationship as His children. So, you know, we have arguments sometimes with our Protestant brothers and sisters from the Calvinist tradition. Some of our brothers and sisters there in that Reformed Church tradition think that once saved, always saved. Once you're saved by Christ, you can never lose your salvation. Now, we Catholics don't quite agree with that, but what we do agree with is once you become a member of Christ's body, there's a permanent change that happens. Sacramental character is imparted. You're a child of the Father. Now, you may choose to walk away from the Father like the prodigal son did, but even if you walk away and die out there alienated from God, okay, you're still a wayward son or daughter. You're still a prodigal son or daughter. You can never lose a sonship in your relationship with God, but you can, for the rest of your days, be alienated from Him. You do have the freedom to walk away as that prodigal did. So I think that's the power of sacramental character. It indicates a permanent relationship with Christ, with the Father, with the Church, and it really is a positive disposition for grace. It's a guarantee of divine protection insofar as we allow God to protect us. And it's also a sign of a vocation. It's a responsibility for worship of God and service to the church. And we're going to talk about the service side and worship as we talk about confirmation. Okay? Let's just say one last thing about baptism. Baptism always conveys something. Grace is always conveyed in every sacrament, including baptism. But it's important to understand that saving grace, justification, sanctifying grace can come to someone prior to baptism. That's why someone could go to martyrdom, could lose their life for Christ prior to baptism, because they've already received sanctifying grace. Okay? God has already initiated that relationship with them prior to baptism. So why baptize? Because in baptism, grace is always imparted anew, and because it's that visible sign of incorporation into the kingdom, in, into the church, that sacramental character is imparted. Baptism is never wasted. It's never superfluous. Now, how about baptizing infants? Why do we do that, and what kind of evidence is there for that? It's important to understand that no one really ever disputed the validity of baptizing infants until the 16th century. There's a number of reasons for why a few Protestant Christians began to object to the idea of baptizing children. Okay? One is, it's a very good reason or very good concern, there's a large number of cultural Christians out there. All society was considered Christian. And so every time a baby was born, it was just a cultural thing to christen that baby. It meant nothing. And in the late 1520s, a group of Christians wanted to see Christianity once again be that countercultural sign where it really meant something to be a Christian, where the church was a, a, the little flock of Christ amidst the pagan world. And so their solution to the problem was to renounce infant baptism and force everyone to be baptized again as adults, as believers, where they were really committing themselves. Now that's called believer's baptism, and these groups were called Anabaptists, people who baptized again. They also said that they were very strict sola scriptura people. If it's not authorized in Scripture, we can't do it. And there's no place in the New Testament where it says explicitly to baptize infants. Okay? So these are the reasons why, to this day, there's a large number of Christians in the United States and elsewhere that will not baptize anyone until they're 12 or so, till they can speak for themselves. Let me just say this. As Catholics, we certainly believe that Christians need to speak for themselves and need to own their own baptism. Their relationship with God can't be something that's just perfunctory and just cultural. Absolutely 100% agreement. However, from the earliest times, Christians baptized infant 
children of Christian parents. Now, is it clear in the New Testament? Is it absolutely clear? No, it's not. There's evidence for it, but it's not evidence that would convict in a court of law. It's not absolute, clear, undeniable evidence. Where is the evidence? Well, there are household baptisms of Lydia and the jailer in Acts 16. They believed, and they and their whole households were baptized. Now, is it possible that the household contained only adults and that everyone had an instantaneous, full, mature conversion all at once? Yes, it's possible, improbable. In a household, usually included a vast array of slaves, including children of slaves. And you have to understand that in the early church, all the way really up until the 16th century, people understood themselves as part of groups in a way that we don't understand ourselves today. And so for a family to all choose the same faith because the head of the family chose that faith, that's pretty understandable, it's pretty natural in a world prior to the 16th century. And we also see some, I think, some stronger evidence for the idea that children ought to be baptized. One is the apostles trying to keep children away from Jesus and Jesus saying, let the little children come unto me. Luke 18, Matthew 19. Okay? If you put that together with John 3, 5, which says that one cannot enter the kingdom unless one be born anew of water and the Spirit. Jesus says, let them enter the kingdom. And it also says elsewhere that you need to be baptized enter the kingdom. Put those together, it makes a lot of sense that little children ought to be baptized. They should not be kept away. Okay? So if you think about it, we need salvation from the moment that we're born. If you believe in original sin, if you believe that all need salvation, then you believe children need salvation. Therefore, children need to be baptized and joined to Christ. Later on, of course, children need to, as they grow older, grow in mature affirmation of their faith. Baptism is something that needs to be affirmed continually. Again and again, we need to say yes to God. But it doesn't mean that wonderful relationship of grace can't be initiated early on in our lives. Now, there's one scripture that was sewed up the whole thing for John Calvin. Most Protestants in the 16th century continued to baptize infants. And here's why Calvin said infants must be baptized. Because Colossians 2, 11 and 12 shows us clearly that baptism replaces circumcision. It is the new circumcision. And who was circumcision performed on in the Jewish dispensation? Eight-day-old boys. So baptism, very validly, must be able to be performed on infants. That was John Calvin's argument against the Anabaptists. Now that's scripture. Here's one other scripture text that really means a lot to me. In Luke chapter 5, verse 20, there's a paralyzed man that's lowered through a roof by four friends who believe in Jesus' ability to heal. When he looked at them, he said that it was because of the faith of the man's friends. Okay, looking at their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that just kind of goes to show that the faith of others can in certain ways stand in proxy for the inability of a person to have faith. Now, if that can be true for this paralyzed man, could it not be true for infants who are unable to affirm faith, who are unable to say yes because of lack of maturity? Could not the community stand in proxy for them, say yes for them, and later on allow them to ratify that? And the answer in my mind is clear yes. Early tradition is unanimous. It said that the apostles taught that children ought to be baptized. It was just a non-question. Hippolytus in the apostolic tradition said just matter of fact, yes. Origin, matter of fact, the apostles taught it. Okay, and in the creed we say we believe in one baptism. You can't be baptized twice. You're either baptized or not baptized. So that's why the Catholic Church has always resisted the idea that one needs to repeat baptism. One does not repeat baptism when one has an adult conversion. One reaffirms, one actualizes, one deepens that baptismal commitment that was made perhaps many, many years ago, perhaps in infancy, by others for you. That's the way it ought to be done. Okay, now I just want to point out that holy water in the Catholic tradition, like the sign of the cross, comes right out of baptism. The use of holy water is a reflection of baptism. The blessing of objects with holy water are sacramentals. And they're sacramentals because they bear resemblance to and flow from the sacrament of baptism, where evil is destroyed by the water, where blessing is imparted by the water. That's baptism. How about confirmation? Confirmation is a sacrament that was never in the early church administered except following, immediately following baptism. Now, why is that? 
Well, because Jesus, as he came out of the water, received the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with the Spirit. He wasn't physically anointed with oil, but Acts chapter 10 talks about the reception of the Spirit that came visibly in the form of a dove as an anointing. And so this idea of the Spirit coming following baptism is really where confirmation comes from. And let's talk about, for a minute, the word confirmation. The word confirmation, we've oftentimes made it in the last maybe 100 years, we've made it into something that never was. The word confirmation means being sealed with, and it refers to the oil with which a person is signed or sealed. Firma means a signature. Con means with. So in the early church, the person was signed with the sign of the cross with a special kind of oil called chrism. And that's what confirmation was about. It has nothing to do with confirming one's faith later in life when one has been baptized as an infant. That is not at all where the word comes from. Now, in the Eastern churches, this sacrament is called chrismation. Chrismation from the chrism that is used. That is an important sign in the sacrament. Okay? It's part of the matter of the sacrament. Okay, let me talk for a minute about the historical background in the early church. Why was it? It doesn't say specifically, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then anoint them with oil and confirm them or chrismate them. Christ didn't say that, but it seems very quickly it was universal that after baptism, Christians received a laying on of hands and an anointing with a special oil called chrism. Now, why is that? First is Christ's example. Christ instituted the sacrament through his own example of being anointed with the Spirit. The church was anointed with the Spirit at Pentecost, okay? And in a ceremony, every Christian is anointed with the Spirit following baptism. There is some historical background that makes this seem a lot more natural if we understand it. One is, in the early church era, in the first century, many, many pagans became Jews. The Roman centurion whose servant is healed by Jesus is a good example. He's a God-fearer who builds a synagogue of Capernaum for the Jews. He's a believer. Now, how did those believers come into the Jewish faith? Two ways. One is they were baptized in water, and then they were circumcised. There was the bath and then the sealing. The circumcision was often called the sealing in the flesh of the covenant. Okay, so that was the natural progression in the first century. So baptismal fonts and the practice of baptism was a Jewish thing. We see that with John the Baptist. And, and so Christians followed this Jewish custom of initiating someone. And that was not the end of it. It was the beginning. The next step was the sealing. Okay, now here's another secular custom. In the Mediterranean world, people took baths in public places. Like we have health clubs, they had the bathhouses. People went there, took baths, and then... After the bath, they were anointed with oil. They were rubbed down with oil, which was for strengthening and healing and relaxing. So that was a natural sequence for pagans and for Jews. The bath and then the anointing, the sealing. So for Christians, seeing what happened to Christ, that after the bath in the Jordan, he was anointed with the Spirit. It became a Christian custom in the time of the apostles that this chrismation happened. This confirmation happened. And we see evidence of it in a number of places. We see Acts 8, 14 to 17, Acts 19, 5 to 7. We see incidences where people were baptized but did not yet receive the Spirit until the apostles laid hands on them. The apostolic laying on of hands following the baptism imparts the Spirit. Hebrews 6, 1 to 2 talks about elementary Christian instruction about baptisms, and then it says about laying on of hands, and then goes on to other things. So the laying on of hands after baptism, you put that together with the anointing, and you have what we now have, confirmation. And that confirmation goes back as far as our records can tell. This is a universal custom, therefore I believe it goes back to the apostles, although we can't absolutely, in documents, prove that. Why do we need confirmation? Why do we need another sacrament, additional sacrament, after the sacrament of baptism. Confirmation really is about the fullness of gift of the Spirit being imparted, an additional impartation of the gift of the Spirit, the strengthening of the seven gifts. And the way I understand it is this. You can be filled with the Spirit 
and filled again and filled again. You can never really contain all of the Spirit because the Spirit is infinite. I love the analogy that I've heard preachers use of a balloon. When you blow into a balloon, it's full, but you can blow some more, and the balloon kind of expands as you blow into it. And that's kind of the way it is in baptism. Baptism gives us the Spirit for our own sanctification. We become temples of the Spirit. We become children of the Father. In confirmation, we are now given an additional measure of the Spirit for another purpose, for the purpose of service, service unto God in worship. It is in confirmation that we're anointed for worship. We're anointed priests. Catholics have always believed that every single Christian, every Catholic is a priest. I laugh sometimes when people talk about you know, the need to have women priests in the Catholic Church, and I say, well, we already have women priests. But most of the women priests and the male priests that I know don't utilize 5% of their priesthood, don't act it out. And I'm talking now, of course, about the baptismal and the confirmational priesthood. Here's a fascinating thing. Chrism is a special kind of oil. It's a perfumed oil that has in it balm of various kinds and spices, so it's fragrant, it's aromatic. And it was only used, and you can look this up in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, it was only used for priests initially and for things having to do with the sanctuary. No layman could be anointed with this chrism. Later on, it was extended to prophets. Prophets were anointed and kings. So the three people in the ancient covenant, the only three kinds of people who were anointed were priests, prophets, and kings. Normal people, lay people, were not anointed with this sacred chrism. Well, the chrism that's used in confirmation shows that we are indeed being initiated into the priesthood of Christ, the prophetic ministry of Christ, and the kingly role of Christ. And the way to understand that is in priesthood, when we enter into the Eucharistic sacrifice, we are exercising our priesthood. It is together with the ordained priest. Now we're going to talk about this later in the course. There's a difference between the ordained priesthood and the priesthood of all believers. But the priesthood of all believers is a powerful thing. And in the Eucharist, the priesthood of all believers is exercised in a magnificent way. Together with the priest, we offer the body of Christ to the Father. And that body of Christ is not just the sacramental body, but it's also the ecclesial body. We offer ourselves together with Jesus, our head, we offer ourselves to the Father as a living sacrifice. There's a beautiful passage in Lumen Gentium 34 that everyone needs to read if they want to understand this magnificent mystery of the priesthood of all believers. But it's in confirmation that in a special way we're appointed to this life of worship. It begins in seed and baptism, but it's much more in confirmation that we are appointed and commissioned unto a life of worship, of praise, of sacrifice, of intercession. But we're also initiated into a life of mission, of evangelization. The prophetic mission of Christ is the mission to be God's mouthpiece. And every single Christian is commissioned in confirmation to be God's mouthpiece in the world. Now, this is a separate course entirely, but here I have to say this much. Many Catholics have heard that we're meant to proclaim Christ in example, that words aren't that important. But I just want to point out very clearly that ever since the Second Vatican Council, the Church has explicitly taught, explicitly, in various documents, that example, although is absolutely irreplaceable, but it's not enough. All of us need to be able to give reasons for why we believe, we need to be able to tell people that if we are charitable, if our family is in good order, if there are these blessings in our life, that it's because of Christ that they are so. That Christ has changed our lives and that he wants to change everyone else's life and bestow on people inexpressible blessings. We need to be able to articulate this in some way. And so all Christians are called to the mission of evangelization. And all of us are called to the apostolic mission of evangelizing the world. Now. I think it's a fascinating thing. Why is it that this sacrament, not baptism, but this sacrament, essentially involves the bishop? You see, in the Western Church, it's the bishop who ordinarily administers the sacrament. In the Eastern Church, it's ordinarily the priest. However, chrism cannot be blessed by a priest alone. It must be blessed by a bishop. In the East, they even make the patriarch bless it. Now, why is that? It's because this sacrament Sacrament of Confirmation connects us in a deeper way to the apostolic foundation and the apostolic mission of the church. 
And the bishop is the living link to that. He is the link, the successor of the apostles who commissions us, through whom Christ commissions us really, to the apostolic mission of the church. That's part of the meaning of confirmation, that every Christian is called to be a worshiper, to be a priest, to be an evangelist, to be one who speaks God's word. And then finally, the kingly mission of Christ. Christ's kingship is a different kind of kingship. His authority is a different kind of authority. He is the one who expresses kingship and greatness through lowliness, through service. So in confirmation, people are appointed unto the mission of service, unto the mission of being a foot washer. That's part of what this means. Confirmation, therefore, is a very misunderstood sacrament indeed. I just finally want to say something about this. Confirmation really, for all intents and purposes, is a sacrament that was received always prior to Eucharist. In the Eastern Church, it is still always received prior to Eucharist. In the Western Church, it was separated from baptism because so many people in the late Middle Ages were coming into the church. It was impossible for the bishop personally to confirm everyone immediately. So they were baptized immediately, and when the bishop could come around to an area, they were confirmed. Upon being confirmed, often it was the age of reason, seven years old or so, they would receive the Eucharist. Now, what happened was this. Confirmation would happen around age 7, 8, 9, 10, and then Eucharist often would not happen until around age 12 in the Roman Church. And there was this sadness that little children could not come unto Jesus in the Eucharist. So around the year 1900, Pope Pius X made it possible for children after the age of reason to receive the Eucharist. Only problem is confirmation often was left for later. And as in the 60s, it became later and later, as the purpose for confirmation in its understanding was lost. And people turned it into, you know, an adolescent ratification ceremony, an adolescent coming of age as a mature Christian kind of a ceremony. Well, that's not really what it is. It's appointing people unto the service of the altar and to the mission of sharing Christ in the church. And we can never be mature enough for that. So to try to keep pushing it off to a later age makes no theological or practical sense. According to the Code of Canon Law, the default or the norm is be baptized and in the Roman Rite to receive confirmation around the age of reason, which is around age seven, to be followed by communion. And that's the theologically rational way of doing the Eucharist here in the Western Church where we have a separation between baptism and confirmation. So this is a point that's debated and we may never see this reinstituted all throughout the United States, but there are many dioceses right now where that is happening. And I personally believe that it's the only way to do it in a way that makes sense. To have the Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith, be that final step of initiation. The way in which it was in the early church, the way it still is for adult converts who on Easter Vigil do what the ancient Christians did. They are baptized, immediately chrismated, and then after having been appointed into the lay priesthood, consecrated with that priestly chrism, they then are fit to come to the altar to receive Christ's body and blood and to intercede for the needs of all. That is really the ancient sequence and that is the sequence I believe we should restore. Now, thanks so much for being with us today as we've talked about baptism and confirmation. In our next class, we'll explore the summit of the sacramental life, which is the Eucharist. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.